uh, you know, this is the revelation of God. The very revelation of God is here. And uh, to actually get that amazes me every time. To, to realize that He would show us what, what is most important. Most people in the world, even though this seems so basic, most people in the world do not know really why they're here. Matter of fact, most of them, as far as education is concerned, don't even know how they got here. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're doing. There's no meaning to life, really. Outside of what you can get for the here and the now, I mean, that's it. And uh, we have the story from the beginning all the way to eternity. And when we realize that the beginning and the end is all here, and why God inspired the Word of God is because of this love that He has. It was initiated by this great love. And it's the very fountainhead. And it is the very spring to the end of what this is all about. I mean, the the river of redemptive history is all right here, right in our Scriptures. And it's promised. Promised right in the Word of God. And so God's Word for us this morning... I think has to be taken very seriously. Because sometimes when we, we kind of peruse over that, we go, oh yeah, I love the Lord our God. Uh, heart, mind, soul, strength. Every ounce of it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I know. And we can tend to phase out. So it's one we really have to concentrate on. As I was thinking about it uh, this week, you know, how, how what can we bring here that can maybe me more meaningful than, than what we've known before? How can we bring some more insight here? And uh, we, we just can't come in assuming that we already know what this love is entirely. And uh, we have to realize that all of Scripture, all of His plans, all of His will hang on these two commandments. I mean, the whole Word of God hangs right on these two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. I mean, that's it. I mean, that says it all, doesn't it? So simplistic but so profound. So God has called us, and I think better yet, He has commanded us to come to Him first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? Come to Him first. And then the form takes after that. All our longings that we have, everything that we desire should be found in Him. And... Our quest that we have for happiness can only be found in Christ, right? All that quest that we have, it's all right there. It has been found in Jesus Christ. So once again, what we're going to do this morning is get to look at our beautiful Savior, our wonderful Maker, as we sing about that. He's beautiful, isn't He? And the more that we see how He answers the questions from these religious elite of the day and is able to stump them is incredible. This is our Lord. So He answers another question. And it's designed to trap Him, to make Him look bad, to make Him look bad to all the people who favor Him so that they would turn on Him and as a result, they could finally do something with Him. And once again, He gives the perfect answer. I mean, that is amazing that He can do that. But He's God, isn't He? 
Let's go into our verse 28 here. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Give us the number one law. What is it? What is it? Now this is the third wave of the questions that have come of him. There have been the Pharisees who would ask a question to trap him along with the Herodians. Then there were the Sadducees who came along and they had the one about the resurrection which they did not believe in but they wanted to trap him there and they thought they had him just like the Pharisees thought that they had had him. And now you have the scribe who comes up to ask a question. It's a legitimate question. And if you look in our Mark 28, or 1228, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing. Uh, Jesus has been debating. The Pharisees have lost. Now the Sadducees have now lost. And this scribe has heard this. He recognizes how he's answered. I mean, this is incredible. This is amazing. Nobody would come up with all this. And he asked the question, if you turn to Matthew 22:34, this is the parallel. Matthew 22:34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, now he had silenced the Pharisees, now he silences the Sadducees. Look at this. They gathered themselves together. Now you don't get that little phrase in Mark. Mark doesn't need it what he's writing, but Matthew does. He places it specifically there so we can put it together and we can see that they, they do a little huddle. They, 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 guys, let's back up. Come on, let's get this thing together here. Come on, we've, you know, we're losing here. We've got to get the right play. Let's get this on the, on, on the right way here. Let's, let's do something. So they gather together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. And he's also known in in Mark as a scribe. And that's exactly what he is. He's a scribe. He's a lawyer. uh, More than likely, a Pharisee. Uh, This guy is very intelligent. And he does know the law. The attempts have totally failed. They are looking like buffoons. So they've got a rebound off of this. And if you're in football... Uh, you have first and ten, then second and ten. Now you have third and ten. And if they don't get this, it's three and out, and they're going to have to punt, which is exactly what they're going to do. You already know that story. But if you look in Psalm two two, you'll see a prophecy kind of being fulfilled right here, I believe. In Psalm two two, you have the leaders gathering together. Now here says the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Now, of course, you're going to have Pilate coming in on this very shortly in a few days, a couple of days. He's representing one of the kings of the earth. Of course, the Gentiles are kind of in on part of this as well as the Jewish religious leaders. And they're taking counsel together. And as Matthew says, they gathered together again. Okay, what are we going to do this time? This lawyer is now going to come up there asking a question. 
And so God had already determined that this was going to happen. And we, we see a little bit of this Psalm 2-2 fulfilled here. It has been, been fulfilled all throughout the ages. And especially at the time of the crucifixion. And of course, whenever they have their trials, they've already gathered together and done this, and here they're doing it again. Uh, this is their final attempt to cause him to mess up on his answer and force the people to turn away from him because he's still in high favor with the people, isn't he? They're outnumbered. These leaders are. And the people are all around. And of course, they even gather more and more as as he has been teaching and answering the questions here in the temple. And there has to be a plot. And this is the plot. We've got to turn the people against him. So the exchange begins with a question from this scribe. He's a theologian, knows the law. Scribe doesn't like the Sadducees. Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees don't believe in anything else but the first five books of the Bible. But at this time, they are on the same side. They, they have actually come together and, and say, okay, what are we going to do? A scribe, here's the debate. And uh, actually, he witnesses the amazing intelligence of Jesus. He has seen the great comebacks that Jesus has had answering this resurrection question. Refuting the Sadducees upon the great question that uh, the two groups had debated, Jesus answers right from the Torah or the Pentateuch, five, Penta, or the first five books of the Bible. And the Pharisees and Sadducees could at least agree on that, couldn't they? Sadducees didn't believe in the inspiration of the rest of the Bible, but just the five books. The Pharisees did believe in the first five books and all the rest of the books. So we see that at least both groups could agree here. And Jesus answers from where? Not the Psalms, not the prophets, but from something that both groups would say, yeah, that's right. He had answered from Exodus 3. And uh, this is dealing with Moses. And it was designed to test Jesus. Now, this scribe, I think, not only is sent by them, but I think he objectively would like to have the answer. There definitely is a test here, I think, as uh, Matthew uh, definitely states. It is a trial, a test. I, I believe we can look back there in Matthew 22 again. In verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, scribe, Pharisee, does this guy know his stuff? Ask him a question, what did he do? Testing him. He's testing him. So he's even on this. But I think there is some legitimacy on his part, being this lawyer that he is, this scribe, and knowing the law. Um, even though he's doing a test, he would like to see what Jesus is really going to come up with. I think it's an honest question, still yet designed to, to trip him up. And so, well, why this question? This is an obvious question. Any Jew would know what the answer to this question would be. Any Jew. Not just the religious, not the lawyers, not just the scribes, the Pharisees and Sadducees, but also all the Jews. They all knew this. I'll tell you in a bit why, but Jesus answers 
so many times with what they don't expect, but it's always truth. It's from Scripture. This time, they think, okay, if He can give any other answer that's something different than what people recite twice a day, everybody did, then they're going to see that He's a heretic. If He comes up with any other kind of answer. So, they think they can catch Him with this one. Such a simple question. So they want to spotlight it on Jesus in that he is not agreeing with Moses. That's the point. Moses, the law, the five books. And so that would probably be this reason. Moses is the supreme authority. He is the one that everybody looks at because he's the one who gave the law, the lawgiver. So this is supposed to be the trap. And the Pharisees believe all the books Pentateuch, Sadducees, Pentateuch. And so Moses is definitely included in the Sadducees' thought. And so if we can get him to somehow deny what we all pronounce every day and to disagree with that, then what he's doing is elevating himself over Moses. Right? Moses is up here. I mean, to them. He's not God, but boy, he's about as close as you can get to God. Moses is everything. Right? So, it's almost like they worship him. He's not God, but boy, you know, his writing is is elevated. And if we can get Jesus to trip on that somehow. Now, the rabbis would often debate about certain things about the law. And they would have this kind of question amongst them. You know, kind of get the um, philosophical edge you know how people like to philosophically debate. They never come up with an answer, you know. And uh, What's the priority of certain laws? And this is one of the reasons why you get the 613 laws made by the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees weren't into that at all. They weren't into anything that was outside of the first five books and the 613 laws weren't in there. And later on, they became like inspired and they were just as important and more important than the law that's been written by Moses. That's how far it, it took it. There's 613 of them. Have you ever wondered why they did 613? You've heard of the 613, right? Most people have heard that. Well, this is explaining the law. So they came with their own laws. Well... I'm sure you just can't wait to hear why they came up with 613. And you say, well, they ran out of them. They finally stopped at 613. No, everything means something to them. And everything is symbolic. And so it was the numbers of the letters that was actually in the Decalogue. Ten Commandments. That's the numbers of the Hebrew letters that are in that. So there's 613. Or they also have... There were 365 negatives, and that was to represent each day of the year. And then the rest of those, the 248 of them, which would equal 613, are you doing the math? Are the positive ones, do this, the other ones are don't do this. What a scheme they had. Brilliant, huh? I think it's absolutely ridiculous. And you've seen how people have done, you know, like, oh, the Antichrist, and they have it counted down uh, to who that is and when exactly he's supposed to return. You know, they'll come up with all sorts of, all the numbers that people will do and and scheme out. So this whole system, this tradition that they had was ridiculous. 
It was it was it was it was just stupid. And you remember that they tithe their seeds and the cumin because they were legalistic. You see how dangerous when you start making up your own laws of how you think things should be, how far it can go. And we can say, well, where do you get that from? That's the point. Where is that at in Scripture? Yeah, that's a tradition, but where is that in Scripture? It can be good. It can be indifferent. It can be bad. Well, they tithe seed, mint, cumin, all the way down. They were tithers. So, we tithe, we tithe everything. So they break it down to every little, every little deal. All at the same time, they're ignoring righteousness and faithfulness. And that's the real issue. That's really what it's about, isn't it? And they didn't succeed very good, did they? <laughs> uh, look in Mark 7, verse 8. Jesus had already checked them on this. In verse 6, He said uh, to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Well, that's sure not going to win, um, friends, is it? As it is written, This people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far away from Me. But in vain do they worship Me, teachings as doctrines, the precepts of men. Here we go. Ready? Neglecting the commandment of God... You hold to the tradition of men. These lawyers, these guys that knew the law, swept the law aside, refined it to their law, the 613 laws. There's the tradition of men. And that was what was more important. And so, here's where we're at. This is the time how far this had gone. There's the question. It's a good question. I think it's a very good question. Now, the heart, the intent of this is another matter, but it's a good question. Jesus will answer it. Verse 29, Mark 12, Jesus answered, The foremost is. Here is it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You want to know the Bible? You want to wrap it up in, in, a, in a quick statement? It's right there. That's living the Christian life. So is your motive that you do, regardless of how holy that you may think you are, is your motive out of love? Jesus, as usual, gives the perfect answer. He's absolutely correct. They would all say He's correct. His answer comes from where? The law. Of course, who gave the law? He did. <laughs> he wrote it. Of course He would know it. Right out of Deuteronomy and right out of Leviticus. Often, Jesus quotes out of those books. The leaders can't even disagree with this. That's what's so profound. They cannot disagree with what Jesus has said. They're they're tongue-tied. He gave the answer that they hoped He wouldn't give. (laughs) He gave it. He was accurate. Always is. 
Deuteronomy is the message of Moses to the people who will go into the promised land. A generation has arisen in the wilderness and they're going to go into the land. The book of Deuteronomy happens. Not a long period of time. It happens in one place. It happens just beyond the Jordan. Now, what we're going to do is turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. And we'll see exactly what Jesus is quoting. Isn't that cool? We have a book we can go into, into time that goes back to 2,000 years that will take us back to the time of Jesus. Here's what somebody asked. What's the greatest command of all? Okay, what's the greatest command? I mean, that's important. Isn't it? It's eternal life. That's what it means. And then we can go, go back 1,500 more years to see where he is quoting this from. Now that is accurate, isn't it? And we have the book that shows that. Now, we are going back 3,500 years, folks, to a book. I I think that's just incredible. And here's what Moses had written. In verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel. Now, does that sound familiar to what Jesus had just stated? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. It's called the Shema. Hear. Hear this. Hear Israel. I want you to hear one of the most important things that you'll ever hear. Hear. It means to hear. Hear, O Israel. All these words shall be on your heart all the time from here on out. And I want you to teach them no matter where you're at. Teach your sons, your daughters. Then they are to teach their sons and the daughters and just keep on teaching this. Love God. The Shema. You know how often that was quoted? Well, once a week, right? It's Sabbath time. Well, actually, every day, twice a day, morning and evening. It's a pretty good devotion, isn't it? Charles Spurgeon has a devotional called Morning and Evening. Well, this is what they knew. Everybody had this. And then you'd have people that were holier than other people, if I can say that. And they would wear these phylacteries upon them around little pieces of leather and a little pocket there and they'd put this little uh, verse in there that we just read on the forehead. Put one on the wrist and while they'd be in prayer, this was part of it. That's it's okay. That's kind of cool. You know, they took literally what he was saying and later on that's what they did. What he's saying is that no matter where you're at, when, what, why, how, keep these things in mind. That God is above all. He's one God. That's what's important. It doesn't necessarily mean the symbolicism. I mean, if somebody wants to do that, 
But there was, it turned into a visual thing, just like their praying did, just like their fasting did. You know, all the religious things can turn into something, look how holy I am. Just be careful about trying to be more holy than others. Because that's exactly what Jesus attacks throughout His whole ministry. That is the, one of the worst things that He saw in what was happening to these people. Everything is to be devoted to God. I don't think that's asking too much, is it? Because He owns it all. And if we devote all to Him, all it means to us is that it's good for us. Really good. So He is one. So in this Shema... They are talking about we are we believe in a one God. That was highly unusual at that time. People didn't believe in one God. It had developed into a system of gods, thousands of gods, millions of gods. The Hindus believe in millions of gods. Most of the religions are pluralistic, pluralism, plural, meaning more than one believe in many gods. The Jews had one God. We have one God. But our one God is a triune God. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. That's overwhelming and that's taught in Scripture. So the neighbor, neighboring nations were pagan and of course that's one reason why he starts off with this the Lord our God the Lord is one they would be saying this all the time the the Lord or Yahweh or Jehovah is our God Jehovah or Yahweh is one one it's kind of like you know grapes they're on the vine and then you pull off a a twig there and there's a whole bunch of grapes on one. It's one, but there are more than one grape there. More grapes. So we can kind of see in a sense that word will be, that word is what is being used there. Um, So, and we go back to Genesis and we see the triune God involved there. Father, Son, Holy Spirit creating. So, um, we know in the Ten Commandments. The commandment says what? You shall have no other gods before me. So we know that it comes up more than one time. Matter of fact, let's just go through Deuteronomy a little bit. Just stay in the book of Deuteronomy. And let's just see how many times, or a few times at least here, we could go on and on, but let's just look at this and see how God really pronounces this. Deuteronomy 10.12. See if this sounds familiar. Now, Israel, what does the Lord, your God, require from you? Do you remember way back in chapter 6? He probably didn't say that. But to fear the Lord, your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him, and to serve the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the Lord's commandments and statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Oh, okay, we've had it in Deuteronomy 6, and now we see it in Deuteronomy 10. Let's stay in chapter, or this section, go to chapter 11, verse 13. It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love 
the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and all your soul. Then He says a blessing. He'll give the rain for your land and season. He'll give you. Love Him. Love Him. He has to keep reminding us, doesn't He? Love me. Love me. Well, it isn't done there. Let's stay in the same chapter and move down to verse 22. For if you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I am commanding you to do, what is that? I forgot. To love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and hold fast to Him. Hang on to Him. Abide with Me. Jesus says that later, doesn't He? If you abide in Me, truth sets you free. Abide. Stick around. Remain. If you're really true, you will abide in Him. You will stick. You will remain because He's the one who has put you there in the first place. But here's what we do in our sanctification. Love God. Keep pursuing Him. No matter what you think or whatever's going around you, if you're pursuing Him and you don't even see the results, it's okay. Because you're in the right place. I desire to love God. Okay? Well, we're not done yet. Chapter 19 of Deuteronomy. Not turning very far from where the apple landed, right? 19, 19. Uh, 9. Thank you. I wonder if it's a 19. No, it's not. Okay. If you carefully observe all this commandment which I command you today, what is that? To love the Lord your God and to walk in His ways always, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. He just keeps adding on promises to them. If you do this, here's what I will do. By the way, I'm going to give you the love so that you can do this. Because I have shed it abroad in your hearts. This is incredible. He just keeps saying this. You want to know why? Because we are forgetful people. We forget, and sometimes we forget even the most basic thing. But keep the main things, the main things, right? The plain things, the main things. Let's go to chapter 30, verse 6. Just in case they forgot... Moreover, he's talking about multiplying. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Oh, he's not necessarily talking about a physical circumcision here. He's talking about circumcising the heart. This is kind of getting into the covenant. The everlasting covenant that Jeremiah talks about in chapter 31. Or in Ezekiel chapter 36. 37. About the heart. Circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. And he says, all those curses and such, you won't have to go through. A lot of promises. Now, we know that this is directly to the Jewish people, but it's really to the descendants. And then the descendants of, you think, if you go back to Abraham, the people of faith, we are the sons of Abraham in that sense because he believed and righteousness was accredited to him. And it says in Galatians that 
we who believe are accounted as righteous. Just like Abraham. It's also found in Romans chapter 4. Chapter 30, verse 16. Just in case people would forget. And then I command you today to what? To love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. Love God. I think the point has been made. Dwayne earlier had read something that was saying basically the same thing out of the New Testament. And of course, that's exactly where we find Jesus. Jesus is in the New Testament as he's quoting the Old Testament. And so he says, heart. So let's go into that for a moment. Uh, We're back to our uh, Mark 12 passage, right? And we're not going to divide this up too much. We're not going to spend a lot of time on each word here. Sometimes we do that. But just briefly, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Um, It's the very core of your being. The very... All your thoughts. It's kind of who you are. Love God with all your heart. It means find God in satisfaction. All right? So much satisfaction that you find in the Lord God. It's so profound that it just fills up your heart. You kind of get the idea there? If you're finding satisfaction in God, in Jesus Christ, that's dealing with the heart. Look in Proverbs 4.23. Much wisdom out of the Proverbs. And it says this. I think this is really good. You've heard it many times probably. Watch over your heart. There's our word for the moment. With all diligence. That's stating something. Watch, Guard your heart. Guard your heart with all diligence. I mean really... You know, diligent means to really labor at it. Watch your heart. Watch your very core of your being. For from it flow... Springs of life. If you've had a heart change, you have the very water of life streaming through you. Watch out. The enemy likes to put up dams. (laughs) Likes to block that flow. The springs of life. Love God with the deepest, purest, truest part of you. Your deepest identity. That's the heart. That's who you are. Uh, And some of these words, you you really can't divide these up. So I have to be really careful because it really comes together as one. But yet we're picking it a little bit of saying, okay, why does he say all these? And really they kind of are the same, but they give a little bit different angle at it. The soul... uh, Did you know that Jesus in Matthew 26... There we get to take a look at the soul of Jesus. You say, what? What what are we talking about? Matthew 26, verse 38. 
Jesus in Gethsemane. This is at the time that they're going to arrest him, but before that he's praying. It takes Peter, James, and John. And he took with him Peter and the two sons, in verse 37, the two sons of Zebedee, James, John, began to be grieved and distressed. You guys ever been there? Nobody's nodding their head going, yeah. But I'll tell you what, everybody's saying, yeah, of course I've been there. Yeah, We've all been there. Because we are human. We do get grieved. We do get distressed. But yet as Christians, we want to keep it in the proper perspective. It's okay to be grieved. It's okay to be distressed. It is part of the human life. And it does come with the package of what sin has done to mankind. Because of that, Jesus felt like we feel. Only, it says here, then he said to them, my soul, every part of me, my my, my inner part is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here. Keep watch with me. Yeah. (laughs) They're having a hard time staying awake, but he was deeply grieved and all the, the sin of mankind and all, what all this is about. Do you find in God meaning? Do you find depth? Do you find richness in, in Christ here? All the aching corners of his soul was involved. He felt it, folks. We've all been there. We can say, yeah, but God really, He doesn't, I know He's there, but He doesn't doesn't seem to care. Oh, cares much more than we could ever care. He's deeply grieved over Himself here. But if He can feel that, he, He knows our distress. He knows the discomfort that we have. And I'll tell you, that's encouraging. Because He can fill up the aching corners of our soul. Has He ever done that to you? Yeah. He does. He does. The soul is dealing with the emotions. It's okay to be emotional. But let me give you a warning. Don't let it be at the top of the list. Don't let it start with that. The emotions have their place and they're way down on the bottom of the list. Because it's your thinking first. And then your will. And then the emotions come there. Don't suppress them. They're there. But put them in the right perspective. When you start thinking on truth, you go to a passage and say, yeah, but God says this. Here's what I'm feeling. I'm feeling that God's not going to do anything about this and He could really care less. matter of fact, I, right now, I don't even, I don't even like God. I'm not giving you the um, the freedom to say that. You might have been there. You might think that. You might think that he forgot. Maybe not. But at the same time, we're wondering, doesn't God, isn't he going to do anything? Just go back to truth. Go back to truth. Here's what I'm feeling. Your, your feeling cannot control the situation. 
Because it'll lie to you. The feelings will lie every time. They can go back 20, 30, 40 years, start bringing up things you thought were done with. Start bringing up trash that you don't even need to go there anymore. It's done with. Move on, right? Don't let those feelings and emotions control. All of a sudden, you can start thinking bad about somebody. They haven't even said or done anything. And you start thinking of something, you know, and your emotions now have control. You say, wait a minute. I've got to go back to the truth here, right? The mind. My, I'm spending a lot more time on this than I expected. <laughs> stay with your notes, Dennis. You know, if I didn't stay with my notes as much as I did, we could just go on and take off somewhere else. And we could be in some other passage or something and never come back. Got to go back to the text, all right? Mind. Mind, that's simple. The will. The intelligence. The best intentions. Our very purpose. Uh, this is all dealing with, hey, I make up my... Mind. I've made up my mind to do this. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they're known in Babylon, they had already made up their minds if they were offered foods from these Gentiles that they would stick with what they wanted to do with. And they did. They already made up their mind. If something comes along where I know I've had trouble with sin at in the past, here's what I will do next time. I will get away from it. I will run like Joseph, right? Those youthful lusts, as uh, Paul tells Timothy and such. Get away from what you know that really hinders you. Just, you know, say, okay, I have troubles with this. I have to deal with this. That's the mind. Putting that into it. Finding God the riches of knowledge. Right here, go to truth, right? Make it speak. Insight, wisdom, all the kind of knowledge that we need. And it will satisfy the human mind. Renew your mind daily. Right? That's what it's meant to be. And then the word strength. Uh, even uh, The physical energy. I'll do it with every part of my being, my physical energy. Whenever I worship, I want to put not only my mind into it, but I also want to put my emotions, I want to put my even my body into this because this is His too. So when we worship, whether it be outwardly or whatever, sometimes people will will bow or do something with, you know, they might do something with their hands or whatever, might even, whatever. Sometimes using the body as part of our worship and as part of loving God. And uh, also not doing things with our body that would be harmful. Uh, this is what it means to be a Christian. Loving God. I mean, that's pretty simple. Hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? To love God. If somebody says, well, I keep the commandments. Okay. Do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength? Every part of, of who you are today. Have you loved Him with every ounce of your being? Ask that to somebody. They'll probably say, well, no, I haven't. Well, then, have you followed the command? If they're depending upon that for salvation, you, you can't love God anyway. People who are unbelievers do not love God. They may say that. Oh, I, he, he's a lover of God. And then his lifestyle does not add up to it. Or he's sure causing problems for people trying to believe that he's a Christian in the way that he lives. Paul reminded us to let our love abound more and more in all knowledge. I think the great prayer that he said in uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. I think our love for God is connected to knowledge, isn't it? Actually, the more you know about God, 
When you have a relationship with somebody, you want to know who they are, don't you? You're going to get to know not only what their name is, where they live, what they've been doing, what they're doing now, uh, you know, what city were they born in. I mean, you start learning all sorts of these things and you get to know that person. Well, we are in a relationship with God and the more we spend time in His Word as He speaks to us through the Holy Spirit and His Word, we get to know this Creator of the universe and I think it's incredible that you continue to keep knowing who He is. And the more you know Him, the more you love Him. You see His holiness. You see His justice and you love that. You see His love. You love that. You see His mercy. You see His grace. You, go, you see His omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, the wisdom of God. Oh, you just love that. The more you know Him, the more there is to love. The more you seek Him in here, the more revelation of God that you have, the more you will know Him. You say, well, how do I, how do I love God more? Just get right into this. This is where it's at. The more there is to love Him. Now, that's the great commandment, folks. That is what our life is about. That's the secret to life. That is life, isn't it? Loving God. But He doesn't stop there. Because some people say they love God, and yet they can say, but I hate Him. And First John says, then you're not true. Because if you have any hatred for people, it's a mark, it's a warning to you that maybe you don't love God. And so he comes in with this second great command. We have a summary of the entire Ten Commandments right here. And only Jesus can do this. Only God can do this. His Word, as He puts it together, sums up all the Ten Commandments, puts them in two. They go so much together. Our behavior amongst people manifest openly and publicly and practically what our hearts are about inwardly. If if we love God, we love our neighbor, it fulfills the law and the prophets. Loving God is invisible, isn't it? But loving others is visible. So you can see why those two have to go together. It's the internal passion of the soul. Love for God, love for the neighbor, you can't divide them. I mean, this is radical. I think it cuts to the root of sinfulness and exposes it. And that's what God's grace is doing here. It comes in here and severs. The root of our sinfulness is a desire for our own happiness for our own meaning that can be apart from God and apart from the happiness of others in God. So if we love God, we want the very happiness that we have in Christ to also be with others, right? As he puts this together. The command of Jesus just cuts to the root and expresses it, severs that root. It's the first commandment. That makes the second commandment doable. Because if we truly love God, do you know what? We will automatically love our neighbor. Because His love, that is the fountain 
that is the spring that overflows in us and expands, overflows us, and we can't help it but to love others. And Jesus came in a sermon on the mount, which I'm sure He said many times, and He said something so profound that nobody ever said, and that was to love your enemies. That's incredible. Nobody, I don't think anybody's ever taught that, to love your enemies. So, make God the focus of your self-seeking. Oh, I just want to find out about my inner self. Oh, no, you don't. You go in there very deep, folks, and you're going to see some rottenness. I'm just seeking to find out who I am. Yeah, good. Find out who you are. You're going to need the Lord because He can convict of sin and He will do that. And so the first commandment is the foundation, the very basis of the second commandment. We can't start loving others and then later love God. We love God because of that we have this second commandment. Look in Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus is the law, isn't it? You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Wow. Leviticus sums it up. You don't have any other option. You don't take vengeance. That's my job. You don't have any grudge. You love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Wow. Look in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verse 8 through 10. Book of Romans, when you get into chapter 12, and then 13, 14, 15, 16, it's the practical aspect of the Christian life. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. You owe it to people to love them. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. What? That's it? If you love your neighbor, you fulfill the law? Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's as simple as it gets. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That means you already love yourself. It's not saying you need to love yourself. No, no, that's the problem. We love ourselves too much. So, well, that's where self-esteem comes, right? No, no, no. He's saying love your neighbor as you already, already love yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Wow. Paul is inspired. The Ten Commandments and such, and he mentions some. You know what? If you truly love your neighbor, you will not steal from them. You will not commit adultery. You will not do murder. You will not lie to them. You will not covet there are things, right? That's your neighbor. If you really love God, you will not have other gods. You will not have idolatry. Uh, you will not take His name in vain. All of those. See, that those are two tables of law. Love God. Starts with God. The second table of the law is about your neighbor. What you do to them or what you don't do to them, right? 
two tables. That's tremendous. And in Romans, this is just all summed up here about loving your neighbor. In Matthew 22, 39. Matthew 22 is the section where Jesus was speaking of the same thing that's in our Mark passage, right? Matthew 22, verse 39, verse 40. This is the great and foremost commandments by loving God. Then he says, the second is like it. It's just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here he makes this great statement. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The whole word of God rests upon these two commandments. They are the very crux where everything, the very foundation where all the commands, everything of Scripture is lying right there. We boil down the Bible with this. Isn't that incredible? That's why I say this statement that we've heard so much is one of the grandest statements in all of the Bible. Wow. The whole scroll, the whole law, hang on the very great sovereign purposes of God. The very will of God hangs on that balance. And now we get the commendation. We're right at the end. Okay. Mark is a quick book. Okay, Mark, come through for me here that we can finish this with a flurry. We covered the commands, right? There's no other commandment greater than these. Folks, this is it. <laughs> this is this is great. We're in a text that is just phenomenal. And I felt like I have not given it its due. But pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us, right? Okay, ready? The scribe said to him, You're right. <laughs> I mean, what else is he going to say? He, he, yeah. Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one. Remember the Shema? There's no one else besides him. To love him with all the hearts, understanding, with all the strength, to love one another as himself as much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. We can go to all those texts if we wanted to, burnt offerings. Uh, you know what he's saying? Beautifully said, teacher. You just gave a beautiful answer. The word beautiful is in here, in this right, teacher. Beautifully stated. And I think you get a little bit of view of this man and how tables have been turned in his own life because he's, that's beautiful. I mean, that's what they said all the time. That's what they believed. And I want you to know, sacrifices, offerings, this was a big thing to them. This is Passover week, remember? People are bringing offerings and additional sacrifices and they'll bring the lambs. This is Passover week. Where they're standing at right now is the temple. He was in the middle of this whole sacrificial system with all the priests all over the place. And this man says here, it's much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well, that's true because if you go to 1 Samuel 15, you go to Isaiah 1, you go to Hosea 6, you go to Micah 6, Leviticus 1, Leviticus 6, and I have the passages there or in your bulletin. You can look those up. It's dealing with sacrifices. But he has something better than all of those if they're just doing it outwardly. He's saying, you got it right. You know what? I don't know what happens to this man's salvation, but I can tell you he's in a 
a little better position now than he was when he first asked the question. But I think even then there was some legitimacy to him. I think he was intelligent. I think he was thinking about this. What happens to the man? I don't know. I really hope up in heaven we'll get to run into this man. But I don't know. I can't guarantee it. It might be like the case of Nicodemus. I'd like to think it would be like that. Because later on we see him with Jesus. Uh, uh, but you know, by night he asked Jesus about... That, you know, ask the great question. And we perceive that you're the Son of God, or you know, a, a mighty man of God. And um, Jesus says you got to be born again. He wasn't settled at that time, but as time went on, we see he changed. This man here, all we know is when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, this man answered intelligently. He came back and he said to him, "You're not far." from the kingdom of God. You could leave a whole message with that. This man has understanding. Jesus saw that he was capable of thinking for himself. Well, I guess so. He saw that the law was more than the system. The law is loving God. The scribe was very close. But you can be very, very close and not ever make it in the kingdom of God. So there's some sadness with that if that's as far as he went. He knows that God is more important than sacrifices. He knew Christ was right. He knew that loving God was the highest priority of all. I think it's a sobering reality of the natural man. The natural man does not really love God with all his heart. And I think if the man really thought about it, he didn't really love God. Therefore, he really didn't love his neighbor. Might have put on a show like he did, but the outward is totally different from the inner. I hope that he got it from the inner. That's up to God, isn't it? But that's quite a question or a statement. You're not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him more questions. I think Jesus gave a compliment, but he also gave a warning. One can be an inch from heaven and go to hell. You get the idea of that, don't you? Spurgeon talked about the portals. It's almost like you can see right in, but not being there and then being cast to the outer darkness. To know truth, but to not really love God, to seek Him, the things that we talk about. Near isn't good enough, is it? In what sense is man near? Well, he's near because he understands that it's an eternal, it's an eternal and also an internal issue. It's not a ceremonial ritual. And I think that's what the man might have been starting to understand. That it's more than those ceremonial rituals of sacrifices. It's more than just being religious. It's more than that. It's about just pursuing God with every ounce of your being That's the best gift that we absolutely have. Keep pursuing. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for Your truth. What precious truth it is that comes from the very words of Jesus, the very Word of God. 
And that, Lord, that we would seek You through Your Word and continue to seek You to show that You have made us true believers. And that would be fruit in our lives that would glorify Your name. For this is not um, an issue that is take it or leave it. It's even more than that. This is, this is eternal. And may it bear on our hearts as far as us as Christians that we would continue to seek You more and not be quiet, but to really desire You, the very person of You. In Jesus' name, Amen.